Welcome back to the program. We're in the midst of a great migration to cities. The number of farms and people engaged in agriculture today continues to decline. Yet human ingenuity has produced abundant resources of food through innovation and technology. In fact, historically, when disaster has struck and we've been threatened as a species, we've always seemed to find a way out, particularly with respect to our food supply. This has resulted in increased populations, which often then takes us to the next crisis. This cycle is replicable throughout history. It's what our guest, Ruth DeFries, calls the cycle of ratchets, hatchets, and pivots. She explains it all in her new book, The Big Ratchet. Ruth DeFries is the Denning Family Professor of Sustainable Development and Chair of the Department of Ecology, Evolution, and Environmental Biology at Columbia University. She's a recipient of a MacArthur Genius Grant, and it is my pleasure to welcome Ruth DeFries to the program to talk about The Big Ratchet, how humanity thrives in the face of natural crisis. Ruth, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. It's great to be here, Jeff. Great to have you here. In many ways, this cycle that you talk about of crisis and then population growth almost in response to it is really the story of of the evolution of our species. Talk about that in a general sense, first of all. Well, it is. Our species is so extraordinary in that in the span of a mere 200,000 years, which is a blink of an eye uh, in geologic time span, we have gone from being an ordinary mammal like our closest ape relatives, chimps and our other relatives, to a species who dominates the world. You can see it looking out of airplane windows to the extent to which we dominate the world. And most of us now get our food from um, grocery stores. Most of us now in the world are living in urban areas and buying our food from uh, places where it's been produced far away. And that is just an extraordinary thing for a species to transform so dramatically and in the process transform the planet so dramatically. But in many ways, we could see the precursor of this in these historical cycles, that in fact, we've produced food through technology or advances in agriculture, and that's been followed by population growth, which then is met with some kind of crisis along the way, and then population growth plateaus for a while, and then we take off again. So this is the cycle that we see repeated throughout history, going back to the domestication of agriculture and likely even before that, that uh, we figure out an ingenious, clever way to manipulate nature, whether it's domesticating crops or figuring out how to supply nutrients to, uh, to plants or some clever manipulation of nature, which is able to increase more food, which is, makes it possible for the population to, to ratchet up. Inevitably, there's some problem that results, a shortage of fertilizer or, uh, or some pollution or some kind of problem, and then we're faced with finding another solution, which again leads to another problem. So that is the pattern that I try to trace in the book is this, this cycle of solutions creating problems which create more solutions which lead to more problems and in those solutions it always seems to be some some technological advance maybe not technological in the sense that we think of it today but whether it's a better kind of plow or as you say a better kind of fertilizer or fertilizer at all talk a little bit about that yes well we're very clever at uh, figuring out how to 
manipulate nature, which is basically resulting in a technology. So, for example, the ancient Chinese figured out that if they carried the uh, the human waste and uh, animal waste and and uh, leftover garbage from the cities back into the fields and applied that as fertilizer, that would keep their soils fertile. So in a sense, that's a technology, maybe not in the way that we think about it uh, today as some kind of sophisticated technology, but it's a way to uh, manipulate nature and basically... Uh, mimic the natural cycle of uh, recycling, uh, the the planetary machinery for recycling to be able to mimic that to keep soils uh, fertile. So we've been very good at developing these sorts of technologies and manipulations of nature time and time again. And the problems that have set in in response, have they been problems of the techno- inherent in the technology itself, or have they been external problems that created the need for simply newer technologies? Well, uh, that's an interesting question, both, <laughs> or all of the above. In, in many cases, in these, uh, these cycles that I trace in the book, uh, the, the problem that results is shortage. So, for example, the use of guano, bird excrement from South America in the 1800s, which kept soils fertile uh, in Europe and in North America. Uh, once that guano got depleted from the very thick deposits off the, on the islands off of the coast of South America, then there was a shortage, which then led to, uh, to more solutions. So some of it is about shortages, but certainly not all. So if we think about the current day, the problems that our success has created in the current day, we have the problems of uh, abundance. We have such an abundance of food that more than a billion people in the world today are obese or overweight, and that number is increasing. Uh, we have a problem of inequity where Despite the fact that we have this abundance of food, we still have 800-some million people who are chronically hungry. Uh, we have the problem of uh, pollution, fertilizer runoff, and so on. So some of the problems are shortages uh, that result from using up a resource, and some are other problems that embed themselves in societies in unanticipated sorts of ways. As each crisis has come along and each technological response to it in the way we're talking about, have we seen an increase in the frequency of these crises? Has, it, has that sped up as so much in our society has sped up today? We may be seeing an increase in frequencies, um, although there are quite a few problems that came up in the past. Uh, I, we're also seeing an increase in the scale at which these problems manifest themselves. So today we're dealing with very global scale problems like uh, climate change, and agriculture is a large contributor to climate change. About a quarter of greenhouse gas emissions come from agriculture in one way or in the other. So that has a global scale impact. The loss of biodiversity and the, the loss extinction of species has a global scale impact in the sense that that's an irreversible kind of change. So it's the, the nature of the problems uh, as well as the frequency. But we also have um, a frequent growth in 
knowledge and expansion of knowledge and the ability to share ideas and develop solutions in ways that we have not had before. One of the things that seems to be part of so many of these technological solutions is really the better understanding of nitrogen and the role that it plays in agriculture. Talk about that. Yes, nitrogen is a very important element of plays a, a, a key role in, in life. Nitrogen is the element which is essential in, uh, in protein. That's the difference between a protein molecule and a carbohydrate molecule. So nitrogen is extremely important. Plants get their nitrogen from the soil. We get our nitrogen, which is essential for our growth, uh, from eating plants that have that nitrogen from the soil or eating animals that have eaten the plants with the nitrogen up the food chain. So nitrogen is essential, and we can only get it through, uh, through the food that we eat. We can't get it the way plants do by absorbing it through our, uh, through our uh, roots. Uh, nitrogen is a, it's a real irony. Uh, the uh, nitrogen is the the most abundant gas in the atmosphere, but the irony is that plants cannot use that nitrogen gas from the atmosphere. It needs to be that nitrogen gas needs to be broken apart into forms that a plant can take up, and that has been the quest throughout history to figure out ways to get that abundant nitrogen from the air into a form that plants can then use and then people can then eat those plants and get their protein uh, from that nitrogen. It's so fascinating when you look at, particularly in, in a contemporary sense, the numbers that, that just as recently as 1950, farmers were producing something like 20 bushels per acre versus 40 today. And at the same time, the number of people on farms, the rural population, has just continued to decrease so dramatically. Yes. The, uh, the increase in the abundance of food since the 1950s post-World War II is just phenomenal. Uh, the, the population growth has been very rapid, as we all know, exponential population growth. But the amount of food produced has increased even faster on a per capita basis than the uh, than the population. That's not to say that everyone has uh, sufficient food because of inequitable distribution, but in sheer abundance on a global scale, it's just phenomenal. And as you say, in uh, industrialized parts of the world, that has occurred with less and less people doing the farming. So in the United States today, it's something like uh, less than 3% of people who are farmers producing this incredible abundance of food for our country and uh, many parts uh, parts of the world. And the way that that has come about is this story of the big ratchet where we, through the long course of history, have devised these ways to manipulate nature and lift the constraints of, uh, of genetics, of water shortage through irrigation, of fertilizer through nitrogen and uh, phosphorus. All of these, uh, of pesticides, being able to, to get rid of the pests, which put quite a dent into yields. So all of these constraints were really lifted in the last 50 years 
through synthetic fertilizer, um, fossil fuel energy, which enabled mechanization, which uh, all came together to uh, to be able to produce this incredible abundance. And yet we've really just begun to scratch the surface in terms of what is technologically possible, particularly with respect to genetics. Yes, well, um, uh, genetics is the oldest way that we've manipulated nature and the most recent way that we're manipulating nature. When we think back to the domestication of plants and animals some beginning some 10, 12,000 years ago, that was a manipulation of genetics. That was so, uh, people selecting the plants which had the characteristics that were desirable, like large, uh, large seeds, so there was more to eat, or harvesting at the same time, or not being too spiky or bristly, so it was possible to harvest the crop. And selection of those plants which had those traits, and then planting those seeds, which was manipulating the genetics through uh, the process, same process of natural selection, just the human hand. So manipulation of genetics goes back a very, very long time. Today, uh, there's the manipulation of genetics through molecular means, which is just uh, a, a new twist on a very um, old principle of manipulating genetics. Certainly when one looks at this historical cycle, in the context of, as you were saying earlier, the abundance that we have today, it's easy to think that we're not going to hit one of these crisis points ever again, but in fact, we may hit a different kind of crisis point. Yes, that's a point that I try to emphasize strongly in the book. The, the pattern of um, crisis and solution over and over again is the pattern that we do see through history. Of course, that's no guarantee for the future. There are many examples that are talked about in the book of um, predicting the future, predicting food supply, predicting population, which did not turn out the way that, that it was uh, predicted. So this, this cycle that we see is no guarantee. It does, though, uh, show that we have tremendous ingenuity and that when we're faced with a problem, that ingenuity really kicks into gear to lead to the next uh, stage in that cycle. But of course, we can never predict what happens in the future. And, um, and a lot of that, what does happen in the, in the future depends on what we, decide, uh, what we decide to do. Can we find any other historical period, even on a, on a much smaller scale, where abundance actually became a problem? Oh, um, when abundance became a problem, well, um, we know, well, there's a very interesting um, principle that an economist um, articulated in the Industrial Revolution, uh, uh, Jeevans, uh, about coal, that when it becomes more efficient, when we have a more efficient way to use a resource, one would think that we would use that resource more efficiently and we would use less of it. But as he showed, and as we see many examples of this, the more efficient way to use the resource actually results in more use of the resource. Maybe, uh, you know, cameras and cell phones might be an example of that, but, you know, it used to be kind of 
more difficult to take a picture. You'd have to get the film developed and so on. And uh, once it became more efficient, now we have cell. You can click a picture on your your cell phone, and there's, you know, people take so many more pictures. So it's that efficiency can lead to a higher rate of use when intuitively you might think that efficiency leads to an efficient use of resources. It's just the opposite. Where does climate fit into this? Can we find other examples where change in environmental conditions, change in climate played a role in either causing or mitigating any of these past crises? Um, Well, there are uh, examples where uh, climate plays a role in uh, in affecting food production and affecting civilization. The um, examples of collapsed civilizations like the Maya, the Mayan civilization, Anastasi in uh, the the Southwest, Easter Island, and so on. There seems to be um, a, de- a component of climate of uh, drought. Uh, or some variability in climate that people weren't used to. But climate, I think we have to think in the whole context of uh, the, the political situation, the uh, demographics, the, all of the factors that affect civilizations, and climate is one of them, an important one of them, but it's in the context of um, of the, the, the governance and the politics and how people are able to respond to crises and how resilient a society can be. When you look at where we are today relative to all that we have been talking about, does it create cause for optimism or concern? Well, when I look at the story of the ratchets and the hatchets and the pivots, um, I could see how one could take a pessimistic story out of that or an optimistic story out of that from a pessimistic point of view if that's the way you want to think about the world what it shows is that we're always vulnerable in terms of our food production we're always experimenting we will probably never be out of this cycle of problems and solutions because we're manipulating something so complex as nature to produce food so we're always vulnerable on the other hand, when we look at this story, we see so many examples of um, solutions and ingenuity, which then do lead to more problems, but lead to more solutions in their wake. So from that ingenuity, I interpret that I take an optimistic view uh, that with a lot of hard work and a lot of attention, we are able to solve problems. Of course, as I said before, that's no guarantee for the future, but I take a, an optimistic story out of, out of this broad sweep of history. Ruth DeFries, the book is The Big Ratchet, How Humanity Thrives in the Face of Natural Crisis. Ruth, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you, Jeff. Appreciate it. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. 